Africa Calling, a bi-monthly podcast with sound-rich reports from our correspondents on the continent. African Voices reporting on African stories produced by Radio France International. And welcome to episode 27 of the Africa Calling podcast on June 25th, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagneto. We have a number of stories from our correspondents on the African continent this week, including one Ghanaian entrepreneur's innovative way to combat plastic waste. Plus, a look at the challenges for South Sudanese farmers in Ye, the country's former breadbasket. And we'll speak to the head judge of the AKO Kane Prize, considered the African continent's top literature award. And finally, don't forget our special song at the end. Africa Calling In Ghana, earlier this month, Accra marked the sixth anniversary of floods in the capital. The floods were aggravated by a glut of plastic bags, which set off a fire in a petrol station, causing an explosion that killed at least 250 people. The government blamed plastic bag manufacturers. Six years later, what steps has Ghana taken to curb the plastic menace? Correspondent Zubaida Mabuno Ismail visits one entrepreneur who has found an innovative way to recycle plastic. Accra, Ghana's capital, is awash in plastic. Plastic production was blamed on the twin disaster that occurred on June 3, 2015, claiming at least 250 lives on a rainy day in the national capital. One plastic manufacturer, who began making disposable water sachet in 2013, resolved to make a difference. He created a product that would help clean up the city and provide another solution to expensive building materials. Nelson Boatin, Nelplus Chief Executive Officer, explains. 2015, where we had this flood at Circle, most of the blame was, was shifted to plastic bag manufacturers. I felt very bad because I know I'm one big contributor to that problem. And the government too was then putting a threat to ban plastic bag manufacturers. I have to find a way of dealing with the plastic in a more sustainable way. That is how come we came about with these plastic bricks. Barton is highly invested in creating solutions. He began working at the company as a child, age 13 to help provide for his family. After working his way up the ladder, he eventually bought the company in 2012. His idea was too prompt, concentrate on the design to make the plastic bricks durable, but also to introduce this novel idea to the Ghanaian public. We did research for about two years. Uh, We started making real production in 2018. But because this product is new to Ghana, I was doing a lot of free work Anybody that wants to buy a hotel, come and do it first. Either they pay or they will not pay. You can't do anything to them because you really want the people to accept it. In 2019, he officially debuted his plastic bricks, a sustainable and cheaper building product. That's the sound of the door of the plastic house, Barton's latest design. Located in Accra, the one bedroom with a hall and a kitchen could become Ghana's solution in bridging the one million housing deficit. The house, 
a few meters away from the production factory, serves as an office space for the Nelplast company. The house was constructed to include sanitation, including a kitchen with running water. He says there was a bit of trial and error before the plastic blocks were made to withstand cutting and drilling and to allow for air circulation. I designed the block in such a way that there is a hole in between the block which doesn't allow heat from outside to get into the room and also maintain the temperature of, of the inner part. The bricks are made in such a way that you can cut them, put your electrical fittings, your plumbing works, and then patch them back that nobody will know even we run pipes through the walls. So this house, we did reach, uh, a trial more than seven times for us to get it right. Currently, a one-bedroom concrete house in Ghana costs at least 150,000 Ghana cities, an equivalent of more than 20,000 euros, a price the average worker cannot afford. The Nelplast solution uses discarded plastic, building a home at less than half the price. And Barton says he's always looking for ways to improve the design, yet keep the cost down for the consumer. This house is made up of 13,400 kilos of plastic waste. We mainly picked the one from the drainage and the beaches. It took us 72 days to build this house. And that even is because we are using the normal roofing tile, which in August, July, August, I'll be introducing the plastic roofing tile, which will further bring the cost down. At the Action Chapel International House of Prayer in Accra, the floors of one of the structures have been paved with Nelplast plastic bricks. Church Facility Maintenance Manager Alex Bamponsen says it's durable. This was installed around October, but as you would attest to the fact yourself after your visual inspection, you could see that there hasn't been anywhere in there, and it's looking as new as it was installed. Bwamponsem discovered other qualities of the bricks too. I also realized that the material was sound resistant. So when you use it, it serves the purpose of uh, these acoustics that we normally, the foams and stuff that we put in the studio because the sound doesn't bounce back, unlike having a solid concrete or a block floor. The Institute of Environmental and Sanitation Studies of the University of Ghana has keenly followed the exploit of Barton and sees both a positive and negative side to these plastic bricks. Julius Jason Amenuve Botri, the team leader at the University of Ghana Plastic Project, says the bricks could be used in certain environments. This can be susceptible to little breakages into micro and minor plastics when especially heavy-duty vehicles pass on these places and this is going to dredge into the soil as micro and probably not recoverable because it's not going to be in the form of a plastic bottle or a black polythene that someone can pick up. This is going to just look like the soil though it's going to contaminate the composition of the soil in that particular environment. However, Boche says the plastic bricks are seemingly safe for use in housing construction. For, I think, a normal person, the first thing that will come to mind is, oh, it's plastic. How about burning? What if it catches fire? But looking at the composition of the blocks, 
she's added sand and you know sand is something more or less like a fire extinguisher so having sand mixed with plastics it's it's going to burn really slowly so that one is one feature that i really give him a thumbs up for according to the united nations development program ghana generates about 1 million tons of plastic waste annually out of this only two to five percent is recycled the rest ends up in landfill in the sea or as burned. back at nelplast brick factory the sorting begins of all the plastic waste that is picked up in the city Barton employs a light team of people to pick plastic waste and this work could complement other efforts in plastic recycling i have over 300 collectors they have the capacity of taking 20,000 kilos of plastic waste from the environment daily. And Nelplast only has the capacity to recycle 3,000 daily. We, we, we want to be doing 15,000 of the Lego bricks, 20,000 of the Lego uh, the paving block. I need about 20 sets of the machine that is used to produce the paving slabs or the paving bricks. And also 20 sets of the machine that will be used for producing the Lego bricks. Since its establishment, Nelplus has produced some 250,000 paving bricks to clients with some weighing approximately 7.5 kilos. While work has not begun yet, Barton says he's had reassurance from government officials that his plastic bricks are a winner. We had the Minister of Works and Housing visiting us and um, we engaged him about this product. That is why he visited. Uh, he made his promise that he, he will ensure that most of the uh, public housing schools will be built from this locally made material because that is what the government is also looking at. Nelplast factory has already been recognized by the UN Development Program for the Plastic Break Project, winning an African Innovators Award. While Accra still fights growing plastic pollution, Barton's plastic innovation could be the option to keep the country clean and provide viable housing for all. Reporting for Africa Calling in Ghana, thus is Zubaida Mabono Ismail in Accra. A new study out from the World Economic Forum this month shows that plastics in the ocean contribute to rising water temperatures as the plastic creates an insulation layer choking the wildlife. Solutions such as plastic bricks could contribute to combating climate change as well. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. The AKO Kane Prize is an award given every year to the best African short story on the continent. The prestigious honor has launched many literary careers as it's considered the African Booker Prize. The top five finalists have been announced, but who's going to win? And how do they pick the winner? We spoke to Goretti Kiyomuhendo, the head judge for the AKO Kane Prize, who is also the director of the Writers' Trust in Kampala, Uganda. Kiyomuhendo tells us that the panel of five judges had the work cut out for them in selecting the top stories from all the entries. Oh, it was uh, quite challenging because we are a panel of five judges and I'm the chair for, for this year's edition. So we got all together, I think, 128 wow. entries mm. that, that we had to read, and uh, I think they were from 22 countries. It was very difficult because the level 
uh, of writing is quite high. I think because the ACOKEN Prize has been running for more than 20 years now, and the submissions are really polished, and most writers get ready for it because it runs exactly the same time each year. So most writers on the continent are familiar with the prize, with the demands of the prize, and they really, really work on their short stories. So the entries were, on the whole, quite good. And coming up with the five was really challenging. I know this is probably going to be a hard question to answer, but um, what are you and the other judges looking for when it comes to African short story writers? Well, I think basically it's, it's the craft. It's, it's good writing that, that is at, at the front of, of whatever we are looking out for, because good writing to, should shine through everything else. So we are not focusing particularly on themes or the person writing, but it is, it is good writing. So as judges, we get uh, guidelines that we follow to choose the, what we put on the shortlist and finally the winner. Can you give us an overview of the stories? There seems to be like, you said that you don't focus on themes, but uh, there's a historical piece. Um, there's one that's talking about like messaging and it's uh, somebody who has had an accident. There's another one of about a young man who is living in Addis and when he comes into contact with NGOs. I mean, there's so many things going on. Um, can you tell our listeners, you know, what they could look for in terms of the five stories? So the, the, the five stories by title, the one is entitled Lucky, which is written by Doreen Bangana from Uganda. Then there is The Giver of Nicknames, that's written by Remy Ngamichi from Rwanda and Namibia. The Street Sweep by Meron Hadero from Ethiopia and United States. This Little Light of Mine by Troy Onyango from Kenya. And then A Separation by Irene Tushabe from Uganda and Canada. The stories are diverse in form and in themes, but the experiences that they present are universal, really. So they are dealing with themes such as loss, hope, love, history, politics, as we already mentioned, which profoundly resonate with readers across the board. So readers out there, they will be able to identify with all the things that I presented in the stories. Another thing I wanted to mention about the, the stories is that three of them are published by literary journals that are based in Africa. There is one published by Ibua, which is based in Uganda, then Doc, based in Namibia, and Lolwe in Kenya. But why is this important? For me, this is very, very important because it shows that African writers and other publishing professionals have succeeded or are succeeding in creating their own publishing centers instead of always looking to the West for publishing opportunities. Because this has been a, a very big issue for African writers, especially those based on the continent, not having enough publishing opportunities or important or established publishing avenues. And usually have to send their stories to be published in the West. But for me, that these three literary journals, based on the continent, could produce stories that are good enough, that are strong enough, that are competitive enough to appear on the shortlist is very profound. 
as you said, the themes are so across the board that everybody could read them and really get something out of them. But they really have a very strong African bent. So people on the continent will find yet another layer of profundity, I believe, from reading these five stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be able to diffuse that around the world, I think that makes a difference. Yeah, it does. Mm -mm. So all, all the stories really present, um, if I can call them images of the continent, different images of the continent that demand to, to be read, that demand to be seen. So as you've already mentioned, the story of the, which is entitled The Street Sweep yes. by the Ethiopian writer Meron Hadero, which is a you know, presenting all the big issues about the continent and its relationship with the West and international NGOs. But at the heart of it, there's this uh, narrator, young man, who is Ethiopian, who is a, a representative of the local Ethiopian who have to deal with these issues. And, and this cuts across all the stories. I wouldn't want to focus just on one. This cuts across all these images of war in Uganda, of uh, contemporary life in, in Kenya. You know, the story entitled Exploration, which is about pain and loss and the young woman having to leave Uganda for Canada. So all these themes and images are true representation of what is happening on the continent. And we really hope and feel that these are images that demand to be read, that readers across the board will identify with and read and enjoy. What would you like to tell our listeners who perhaps don't know a lot about the AKO Kane Prize? What do you want them to know? So this is a prize that uh, shines the spotlight on the incredible talent in short story writing that is emerging from Africa and its uh, diaspora and has been running, as I said, for over two decades now. It's the biggest endowed literary prize for African writers who write short fiction because the, the final winner will walk away with the 10,000 pounds, which is quite significant. But also everyone on the short list, all the five writers will also take a cash prize of 500 pounds each. But uh, for me, most importantly, that as I say, if you appear on the short list or go on to win the, the prize, this is a prize that will change your life because it is it's the, the highly endowed, it's the most important prize for African writing, for those writers writing short fiction. And it has been referred to as the, as the booker, as the African booker. It's, it's that important. That was Kio Mohendo, the head judge for the AKO Kane Prize. Be sure to check out their website at caneprize.com to read the finalists' short stories for free. Check out our Twitter feed next month when we congratulate the winner. Check us out on Twitter, Africa underscore underscore calling. We're at Africa underscore underscore calling. In South Sudan... More than 6 million people face food insecurity, and this figure is projected to shoot up due to the impact of COVID-19. Recent improvements in the country's overall security situation has seen a steady increase in the number of South Sudanese refugees returning home. More than 2 million South Sudanese fled the country due to the civil war and sought shelter in Uganda, the DRC, and Kenya. Now, some 5,000 refugees have returned home to Ye, located in the southwestern part of the country. Many are coming with hopes of cultivating their farms and being able to feed their families again. 
Yet, these hopes are still in the shadows of localized insecurity that prevents many returnees from returning to their farms. Correspondent Sheila Pani reports on the challenges the voluntary refugees are facing as they try to resettle and reintegrate into the place they called home. Here in the southwestern town of Yei, some 5,000 refugees have returned home from Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo in the hopes of eventually returning a large-scale farming, which is what Ye River County was known for. The 24-year-old Muki Nicholas is one of those voluntary returnees who spent five days working from Rhino Camp in Arua District, northern Uganda, in January. He had fled with his family nearly four years ago after the fighting escalated in Ye. Muki says his family returned on foot because they couldn't afford the pay for transport. His wife and four children traveled during the dry season. The sun was so hot, his children became sick. He endured that long journey because he wanted to return home to till the land. But insecurity in parts of Ye has scared him off his own farmland. I am a farmer. I started farming since the day I came back, now that God has given us the rain. Unfortunately, I farm very far from town and the road is not safe. Even the farm is not in a safe area due to the insecurity situation on the road. I'm afraid, so I had to stop farming. And it is not just insecurity that returnees are confronting. Many people are returning to empty homes. All of their possessions they left behind were evangelized, including farming tools. Cecilia Zedia, a professional farmer, says that she and people like her are finding it difficult to farm without farm implements like hoes and seeds. There is no government support from farmers either. We know very well that in Yei here, we are dwelling mostly in agricultural activities. This is the basic. So, let me say general agricultural inputs, like seeds, tools, and um, things where they can spread their things when it is harvested, like the carpets also, they are in need of. Because this is the first season where returnees, the IDPs, and the host communities, they are dwelling in agricultural activities. And if they are not having those tools, it is very hard for them to continue with the agricultural activities. Ye River County used to be considered the major food basket for South Sudan. Today, pockets of insecurity are preventing large-scale farming, and the county has not been able to produce enough food. Dudu Emilia Kenyi, Director of Agriculture in Ye River County says large-scale crop production is impossible as long as farmers don't feel safe. Food is limited, as I've said before, because the land itself, it is, people are just digging within the town at first because they don't go very far from the town. If they go very far, it means the insecurity is there. So it is limiting the farmers not to produce in larger quantity. At the end of the day, the food they produce will be limited and it will not last for long.
Many of the voluntary returnees are being encouraged to cultivate the small plots of land closer to their homes as they awaited the situation to normalize. Moses Mabe is the secretary for Ye's Relief and Rehabilitation Commission. He says there is an urgent need for peace and stability to allow the returnees to return to their farms and support the agriculture sector. At the moment, this uh, government, we encourage those who has, has come, then they let them use the small land which they have to help them. Planting vegetables, even maize sometimes could help them. Uh, though they don't have access of going outside, but still we believe that uh, things will work out, time will come where they'll even move outside to cultivate. In fact, if your garden is out, like if your garden is five miles, ten miles out from here, and then that's, it's impossible to even to go. Uh, most of them can say, but now the situation itself can define. Can define if we, they can have access or not. But at the moment, they are using the small language they have within the town. Some humanitarian organizations such as the Finland Church Aid have stepped up with cash vouchers supporting the most vulnerable groups to buy food and other non-food essential. Many people are vulnerable to widespread acute food insecurity. Several non-governmental organizations in Ye are assisting the returnees in becoming productive by supplying seeds and farm implements for family food production and ideally to return to a large-scale farming. But for farmers like Muki, security is important. He wants the government to ensure that people returning home enjoy the stability to build their livelihoods. I'm requesting the government to help us, mostly for those of us who have just come back. We would like to have peace without being disturbed because it's rainy season and we want to cultivate. And besides, what we plant is not just for us, it's for the whole country. Farmers like Muki and Cecilia are hoping for a lasting peace so they can get on with their lives and begin to contribute again to South Sudan's farming breadbasket. Reporting for Radio France International's Africa Calling, this is Sheila Pony in Yei Town, South Sudan. This past month, the UN reports that Yei was the site of a number of clashes between armed forces as well as cattle keepers and host communities. Find us on your favorite podcast platform app, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Alison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Alison. What song do you have for us? Well, it's a song by One Love, the Kubula. You know, he's from Ghana. Do you know him? Oh, yes, I do. He's <laughs> fabulous. He is one. He's, he's great, isn't he? Quite a character. Uh, he's sometimes known as the African Gypsy because he's half Ghanaian, half Romanian. Mm. Uh, he really is a character and he's got this wild mane of dreadlocks. So he sings partly reggae, rap. Uh, he's a committed environmentalist. And most recently, 
he's been very outspoken in his support of the LGBTQ community in Ghana, which, as you know, has been under attack with the arrest of more than 20 LGBTQ activists yes. in June. So he's really a citizen of the world, is one love. He had a big hit back in 2016 with the song Human Being, Just Like You. And one of his new songs is called Soul Rebel, S-O-L-E, uh, which makes sense when you know that he never ever wear shoes rain <laughs> or shine snow whatever he sometimes wears a skirt you know he really is a free spirit so in this song he says i be rebel and that's his message i hope you like it great well we'll leave you with the fabulous sounds of one love the kubalor i'm laura angela bagnetto this episode was edited and recorded by erwan rome goodbye for now Daybreak again, I rise and brush my teeth Wash my face and find some fruits to eat Pretty people smile at me and greet Then ask me why I have nothing on my feet I be rebel Take three pups and head out into town Seeking inspiration for my sound Sun is shining Burning Babylon down Asphalt they melt, yet my feet stay on the ground I'll be rebel Just cause I'm brown, you frown at me like that Who be this man who always be wear skirts I de wear rapper, some go argue till it hurts No, even in snow, my feet no go forsake the earth I be rebel When it gets to my turn Justice then freedom That be what I earn One thing about me We everyone for learn I'll be rare I'll be rare